This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Save the date for the grand reopening on May 14th and 15th after the most extensive and transformative renovation in its nearly 200-year history. It's your history museum, your story. Details at virginiahistory.org. Welcome to episode two of season six of the How We Got Here podcast. I'm your longtime host, Rachel DePompa. I get to say that, right? After six seasons and two and a half years, you're still listening and we thank you. This week, Colton, Kate, and I, your podcast trio, are diving into the beginnings of America with a rock star and a framer of the Constitution. We are turning back the clock on the week of March 14th through the 20th. In the short history of the United States, there's one country who comes through for Americans time and time again, France. Name a war and the French had our backs, especially for the birth of our nation. The country played the ultimate role in the American Revolution, led by rock star French aristocrat, the Marquis de Lafayette. Everybody who meets him remembers him. Gilbert de Mortier was sort of his main first name. And everyone who met him eventually just called him Lafayette. Now, if you are a Hamilton lover, David Dix memorable portrayal of the revolutionary hero made him a breakout star of Hamilton's original Broadway cast. And it was art imitating life. Lafayette is arguably one of the biggest breakout stars of the American Revolution. It really is like a rock star. And you know, tens of thousands of people would come out to see him. It was March 14, 1781 the day the Marquis de Lafayette arrived in Virginia to begin a campaign against the British that would culminate in their defeat six months later. To help us understand the importance of what is now known in history as Lafayette's Virginia campaign, we've enlisted the help of Sam Fleur. I am the Virginia History Day coordinator at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I was born and raised in Yorktown, Virginia. Growing up in Yorktown was hard to miss history. It was all around. My dad would take me on like bike rides and runs on the Yorktown battlefield. Had that just very early interest working and volunteering at a local museum in Newport News that just really drew me into wanting to work in museums and teach other people about history. Sam went to William and Mary and studied history and was lucky enough after college to get a job at the American Civil War Museum here in Richmond as an educator, tour guide. He's been with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture for two years now. And by the way, if you think you are occasionally hearing what sounds like a drill in the background at times during our interview, you are. It's the renovations taking place at the museum. Sam Fleur says, To understand the almost Elvis-like reputation of Lafayette, you have to start from the beginning, at his childhood. 
Lafayette was definitely born into privilege in France in 1757. His family were one of the wealthiest families in all of France. The men in his family had a long history of being soldiers. His father actually was killed in the Seven Years' War, the last sort of major war between France and England. He was killed by the British in a big battle. Lafayette is two when his father dies. Lafayette, as this teenager, had something to prove. He had this lineage that he wanted to step into and prove himself worthy of his family's name. And it helps when you have one of the largest fortunes in the entire country. You get a seat at the table in the 1770s. His mother and then grandparents also die when he's in his teens. So he becomes sort of a man at the age of 13 or 14. And then to add upon his privilege, he marries into an even more influential family. They're not quite as wealthy as Lafayette. So Lafayette brings the wealth, and then his new wife's family brings the political connections and influences. Which means Lafayette finds himself mingling on a regular basis with King Louis XVI and his court at the lavish Versailles. But that's not really the future that Lafayette wants. That court fanciness doesn't really appeal to him. He wants to prove himself on the battlefield. And so he very early uses his connections to get an appointment as an officer in the French army. Then when he is, you know, only 17 years old, he hears about a chance to prove himself. His chance is the burgeoning revolution in the British colonies. It's 1775 very early in the fight. His father-in-law was an influential French official, and he was actually hosting King George III's brother at a dinner in France, the Duke of Gloucester. And the Duke of Gloucester at this dinner was talking about the, these upstart colonists and how insolent they were, and you know how dare they try to take issue with the king and, and British rule, and how quickly it would be you know, stamped out. And Lafayette heard him talk about this and was immediately taken by it. And remember, the British killed his father. There's no love lost there. A chance for revenge can be a motivator. As anything, it's complicated, but part of it is he's young and wants to prove himself on the battlefield. Part of it is he believes in these enlightenment ideals of you know, liberty and self-determination, but then it's also personal. And I think that very much has something to do with his drive. It was the perfect storm, but it takes Lafayette a few years to actually get over to North America. And he has his chance in 1776, 1777. At that time, the Continental Congress, they knew that they couldn't win this war on their own. They didn't have the money, they didn't have the supplies, they didn't have the expertise. When they look around the world, who's going to help us? France is the obvious choice. France is England's longtime nemesis. In the Seven Years' War, France had lost prestige and territory, so they definitely had an axe to grind. Congress sends a delegation to Paris to start that dialogue to try and sway the French to join the war. A guy by the name of Silas Dean, a figure that not a lot of people have heard of, but he was the first uh, congressional representative in Paris. So he starts making these connections, he starts raising money, and the French at this time are happy to help to get back in England, but they're not quite ready to formally help. They want to see how things play out. They don't want to put all their eggs in America's basket in case the revolution fizzles and falls apart. 
They want to be on the winning side. Who doesn't? So they're providing soft support, but in a clandestine way. Money, supplies. But there's a lot of spying going on at this time. Someone is always watching the ports, and England knows what the French are doing. They know, but it's not formal. It's not out in the open. One of the French uh, foreign ministers, he sets up a sham company, actually, with under a different name, and funnels money and supplies through that. What was more egregious in the eyes of Britain was sending French military officers to North America to help the American army. So when, when Silas Dean is in Paris, Lafayette hears about him, he goes and meets with him. Silas Dean is a little apprehensive, you know, here's this teenager who doesn't have any experience, but he was really taken by Lafayette's enthusiasm. He just saw in his eyes that he really wanted to do this. So he says, yes, you know, go to America, tell them I sent you, and you should be set up. But before Lafayette goes, other French officers had gone, and that word had gotten out to England, to the king, King George, and the British government were extremely upset. And they sent official word to the French government and says, you know, what are you doing? You can't interfere in our domestic affairs like this, or else this might lead to conflict. And again, France wasn't quite ready. So they had to say, oh, we're very sorry, we're very sorry. And the king, King Louis XVI, actually issued a formal order forbidding any French officers going to America. And that would include Lafayette. So the king is telling Lafayette he can't go. But we're talking about a 19-year-old, and not only that, but a 19-year-old with one of the biggest checkbooks in France. So Lafayette simply purchases his own ship, supplies it, fills it with him and some other French fellow officer friends, and he disobeys the king's orders, and he sails anyways. He actually leaves France without telling his family, without telling his wife, because he knows with their connections to the king, they, they were not gonna let him go. June 13th, 1777, a 19-year-old French aristocrat secretly arrives at a port in South Carolina. Him and his fellow officers make the trek up to Philadelphia to meet with Congress. And he introduces himself, says, you know, Silas Dean sent me and said that you needed my help. Well, Congress at first looks at, again, a 19-year-old with no military experience and says, you know, there's the door. Because he, what is he going to add to the Continental cause? And not only that, but all of these other French officers who had arrived before Lafayette sort of put a bad taste in a lot of Americans' mouths because they had come and they had this experience. They were sort of haughty, you know, full of themselves and said, you know, we want money. We want high ranks in your army and we want to make decisions. We want to be in charge. And Congress and, and Washington and his entourage were not ready to do that. You know, this was still their revolution, their war. And they don't have a lot of money to pay these French officers the salaries that they were used to. That is sort of the context that Lafayette walks into. But Lafayette, again, has an advantage because he is not like these other French officers who are coming for money and, and land. Plenty of that back home. Lafayette makes it clear he wants adventure and revenge and to support the new cause. And that is really what turns Congress's eye. They go, oh, you'll do this for free? That sounds perfect. And not only that, Lafayette says he'll pay for his own stuff. 
And very quickly, word gets out to Congress who Lafayette is and what his family connections are. And he does have this connection to the king and to high-ranking French officials. Plus, he has all this money. And so Congress goes, well, wait a second, okay, maybe we'll, we've changed our tune. We would love to have your help, Lafayette. And the charismatic Frenchman instantly makes friends with all the right Americans. Namely, George Washington. Right after Congress approves Lafayette as they make him a brigadier general in the American army, and they send him to Washington's headquarters, sort of as an unassigned general. Washington takes him in, and the two immediately have a spark between the, between the two. Uh, you know, Lafayette had heard of Washington before he even arrived and already was a fan. And when he meets him in person, he lives up to all of his expectations. He's tall and this father figure that he never had. You know, his dad died when he was a baby. And so he's this, you know, military father figure that really can be a mentor and teach Lafayette all of the things he wants and needs to know about being a soldier and about being brave on the battlefield and making these tough decisions. Eager to prove himself to this fledgling, forming nation, Lafayette jumps into the action. The first major battle he participates in is the Battle of Brandywine, which happens right outside Philadelphia in the summer of 1777. Again, Lafayette is not in command of any soldiers, but uh, at one point the Americans were being pushed back, British were winning. Washington sends Lafayette to go help these Americans sort of regroup and, and not be totally defeated. And Lafayette jumps in the middle of the battle. He jumps off his horse. He's very conspicuous. He's, he's urging the uh, American soldiers on and he's actually shot in his leg and doesn't realize it because he's so caught up in the battle. He doesn't realize it until blood starts gushing out of his boot. After that, Washington actually assigns his personal doctor to take care of Lafayette to nurse him back to health. Right at the beginning, when Lafayette arrives, he says that not only can I talk the talk, but I can walk the walk too. And that really, I think, cements in Washington's mind that this is a, a guy that I'm going to keep close. He stays for a year and builds relationships. But before we get to the Virginia campaign, Lafayette actually travels home to France to see his family and to find more support for the cause. Oh. And also, there's this little matter with the king, you know, when he openly defied him. And while there, he first has to publicly apologize to the king. But because of all his success, you can't be mad at somebody if what they do ends up being good for your, for your image. King very quickly, uh, you know, accepts his apology, and Lafayette is treated as a hero already in France. People recognize that this guy is really something special. And while there, he's you know, trying to convince the French government to send an army and a fleet to support America. He is successful in that. France does decide to send soldiers and, and ships to America. And Lafayette secretly wanted to come back to America leading those soldiers, being the general in charge of the French expeditionary force. Because again, he's so young and inexperienced and the French army is full of these old generals who have tons of experience, it would just 
rub way too many people the wrong way if, if that occurred. So instead, France makes Marshal Jean-Baptiste the Comte de Rochambeau, is a very old, experienced French general. They put him in charge of their expeditionary force. And Lafayette is personally very hurt by this. You know, this has sort of been the first major, I guess, blow to all of his very quick rise. So instead, the king sends Lafayette back to America before the army of 5,000 soldiers is to arrive. He's to tell George Washington help is on the way. It's the spring of 1780. And just before he leaves, Lafayette once again sticks it to the king. He says goodbye to the king in person, but instead of wearing a French uniform, he's wearing his American uniform. And so all of the people in court who were watching this all you know, were snickering to one another and commenting that this is sort of Lafayette's way of saying thank you but no thank you to the king in the most polite way that you can say that I'm upset. Lafayette's notoriety is already starting to level legend. He arrives back in America at the Port of Boston. He is treated as a hero. He arrives in the port of Boston, they fire cannons, the whole crowd comes up, rings bells. Abigail Adams, other influential Bostonians comment on, you know, the, the Marquis is back. As planned, the army arrives a couple of months after Lafayette. He plays an important role as sort of a, a mediator between Washington and Rochambeau because Washington doesn't speak French and Rochambeau doesn't speak English. So they need a translator for all of their meetings. Um, and they need a translator too, who has the confidence of both generals and, and sort of knows what's going on. Lafayette is in Washington's inner circle. And so he knows what the plans are and is able to communicate those between the two generals. For the first four years of the war, the British concentrated all of their efforts in New England and the Mid-Atlantic states. That's where George Washington and his Continental Army was. That's where the Congress was. England was constantly trying to capture Philadelphia and New York. But once France declared war and openly sent this army, it changed everything. Because it goes from being a revolution in the colonies of North America to a global war of empire. France is the second biggest empire in the world. Shortly after France declares war on England, Spain declares war as well. And then after them, the Netherlands, the Dutch declared war. And that means that England has to worry about their other imperial possessions. And North America is not the most valuable colonial possession to England. The Caribbean islands and the West Indies are the real target because in the West Indies, they produce sugar, the most valuable commodity in the world at this time. It's like striking gold. They all go after England's possessions in the West Indies. And England only has so many soldiers and they only have so many ships. And so that means that they're gonna have to take soldiers and ships that were in North America trying to defeat Washington. They're gonna have to take those away and send them elsewhere. So England starts attacking in South Carolina and Georgia. It's heard word there are possibly loyalists there. And if England shows up, these loyalists will join its army. England's way of doing more with less. They sent their main army from New York to capture Charleston, South Carolina, the biggest city in the South. 
And this was a huge disaster for the Americans because when the British captured Charleston, 5,000 American soldiers surrendered to the British Army. And the British general in charge of that? The infamous Charles Cornwallis, whose name has been dropped many times in this podcast. He's having small successes to the South, but he's also having the same problems the English ran into in the North. First off, not nearly as many loyalists show up as everyone told them we're going to. Significant numbers do, but not in the numbers that they expected. Secondly, the Americans, while their, their large armies are defeated and surrender, they don't give up. Famous sort of guerrilla militia generals like Francis Marion, who's known as the Swamp Fox, Thomas Sumter, the Gamecock, these really extravagantly reputation, funny nicknamed American generals, start attacking British outposts and making British soldiers not being able to sort of walk around the countryside on their own. So Cornwallis eyes Virginia, the most populous of all the colonies, the wealthiest, George Washington's home state. Up to this point, Virginia had not seen really any major fighting. After they forced Lord Dunmore, the royal governor, to flee in 1776, there had been really no British soldiers at all in the state. There had been some like frontier fighting, but that was about it. So in 1779, a British expedition arrives in the Chesapeake Bay. They destroy supplies at Portsmouth and Norfolk. They cause a lot of alarm. A lot of people are really concerned, but then they leave. Later in 1780, another British expedition shows up, and it sort of does the same thing. It destroys stuff on the coast, uh, makes a lot of people very scared, but then it leaves as well. It goes and reinforces Cornwallis. But in December of 1780 is when the British come, and they come to stay, for the next 10 months. And this expedition is led by none other than Benedict Arnold, one of the most infamous names of the Revolution rivaling even Lafayette, only for all the wrong reasons. And Arnold had only recently started wearing a red coat as opposed to a blue one. It's hard to overestimate or overemphasize how big of a deal Arnold's treason was. Arnold, up until his treason, was one of the most celebrated and successful generals in the American army. He was wounded twice. He was known for his heroics in battle. He was very enthusiastic for the cause as well. But in his eyes, he was personally insulted too many times. He thought that he was passed over for promotion on several different occasions. He also lost a lot of money. He was a merchant prior to the war, which relied on trade. And so during war, trade is hugely affected. So he loses tons of money. He was accused of corruption by Pennsylvania government officials. And Washington knows, you know, a lot of it is, this is politics. And while yes, Arnold probably is not doing all the things he should, he also probably doesn't deserve all these attacks. But because of politics, he can't really forcefully defend Arnold either. Arnold feels sort of abandoned by Washington and by Congress, that he's not getting his just dues for all of the blood, literally, he's spilled in defense of the cause. He then starts, putting feelers out to British army officials, and they know about Arnold's dissatisfaction as well. Long story short, or story for another podcast, in September of 1780, Benedict Arnold makes the jump to join the Brits, and George Washington is stunned. It is bombshells in Washington's camp. This is one of his most trusted, loyal, well-known generals during the war. 
I like to give the analogy if, like, during World War II, George Patton switched sides to the Germans, you know, halfway through. It's kind of that big of a deal of what kind of name this was. Arnold instantly takes advantage of Virginia's unpreparedness, its lack of a militia. He sails right up the James River and captures the capital of Richmond. Thomas Jefferson was governor of Virginia at this time. He's forced to flee. Arnold destroys all the military supplies in the capital and really makes everybody look really bad. Not only was the capital of Virginia captured and a lot of it burned, but it was done by none other than Benedict Arnold, the most hated man in America this time. George Washington is incensed and he devises a plan. Re-enter the Marquis de Lafayette and now the Virginia campaign. Washington knows he can't just let this be. It's personal too. Washington was personally hurt by Arnold's treason. And it's also his home state. And he has a lot of, you know, Thomas Jefferson, other Virginia politicians are writing directly to Washington saying, hey, we need help. You need to do something about this. He then gets Lafayette and he says, I'm gonna send you with about 1,200 soldiers, uh, his light infantry, some of the best soldiers in the Continental Army. I'm gonna send you to Virginia to take care of this. I want you to capture Arnold, and if you do, to execute him. He gives him that authority. That's a lot of trust. It really shows you the depth of their relationship. And this is by far Lafayette's biggest test in the war. Previously, he's sort of been with the main army and he's had, you know, independent commands, but this is the first time where he's being sent with soldiers, some of the best soldiers of the army too, all by himself to go try to take care of this issue. In mid-January, part of the army is in New York and New Jersey. Lafayette has to merge them all together and march them down to Virginia. And when he's in Maryland, Washington also tells Lafayette that I have convinced the French to also help out too. So up to this time, the French army, remember, arrived the year before, but they hadn't really done much. The French commander, Rochambeau, was very cautious. He only wanted to move against the British when he thought all the pieces were going to be just right. Washington is able to convince Rochambeau to send some ships and some soldiers to try to get Arnold. Arnold's in Portsmouth at the time, after capturing Richmond. Lafayette wanted to attack Arnold by land and sea. Only problem, the British noticed the French fleet moving toward Virginia. They decided they needed to stop them, and they sent their fleet from New York to intercept the French expedition. And they fight this naval battle called the Battle of Cape Henry off the coast of Virginia, right at sort of the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. And the British win. The British stop the French expedition from entering the bay. And the French have to turn around and they go back to Rhode Island. A major wrinkle in Lafayette's plan. He can no longer sail his men down to the Chesapeake Bay because of the British warships. And not only that, but the British then bring more soldiers to reinforce Arnold. They bring about 2,000 more men under the command of a general named William Phillips, very respected, experienced British general. And so now Arnold has even more men, and Lafayette is stranded with his soldiers up in, in Maryland. Which brings us to March 14th, the day Lafayette comes by himself to Virginia. But when he's here, he goes to Williamsburg and goes to Portsmouth to sort of look at the British. 
he has to go back to his soldiers and think of a new plan. And initially, he was going to turn around and march back to Washington because he said, hey, you know, this, the plan isn't going right, so I'm going to come back and we'll maybe try again later. But Washington tells him, he says, no, I want you to go into Virginia regardless, and I'm going to send you more soldiers, and you just do the best you can with what you have. That's when Lafayette starts the long march of his men from Maryland. They go into Virginia by way of what is now Alexandria and Fredericksburg into Richmond. As Lafayette is making his way south, Arnold and Phillips make their way north, and they go on a new attack. They have these soldiers, and again, Virginia is not ready to stop them. Again, the militia does not come out in the numbers that they need. They're disorganized. Arnold and Phillips march up the James River, again, destroying supplies sort of as they go, not meeting a lot of resistance. They eventually go to Petersburg, Virginia. There is a large amount of supplies there. And another famous figure from the Revolution appears. It's like a who's who of history books, this story. That's why the Virginia campaign is so interesting, just because all of these names that we hear of, they all show up at some point. Baron von Steuben, very famous Prussian officer who had sort of saved the American army at Valley Forge by training them and making them professional. He was sent a couple weeks earlier by Washington to try to get Virginia shipshape. And so Steuben has a small army of militia, and they fight Arnold and Phillips at the Battle of Petersburg. And the militia actually prove themselves pretty capable at this battle. They lose, but they make a good showing of it. And they sort of bloody the, the British a little bit, which raises the morale of, of Virginia. Arnold and Phillips, they capture Petersburg, they destroy more supplies. Steuben realizes with his small force he can't really do much, so he retreats. And they move north, and Phillips and, and Arnold are about to cross the James River. They're in Manchester. And they're about to cross the James River and capture Richmond for a second time. In the nick of time, it's one of these just, you know, you can't really plan this. Lafayette shows up on the northern shore. Literally on the same day as the British do on the south shore, where they were about to cross, they see Lafayette's men and they see that they're not militia. These are professional continental soldiers from Washington's army. So they realize, well, you know, we're maybe not quite ready to take Lafayette on here. So they start retreating and they were going to head back to Portsmouth. As they're moving back south, they hear word from Cornwallis. Remember, General Cornwallis had been terrorizing the South, but he turned his attention to Virginia. And now, he's here. Virginia was sending all of the soldiers and all of the supplies that the Americans needed in North and South Carolina to fight the war. So if he was able to go into Virginia and destroy the supplies, mess up the logistics, the organization, that would choke off the resistance further south. I think, too, he was just restless, and he saw Virginia as this sort of prize that he could make a name for himself in. It's May 20th, 1781. Benedict Arnold and Charles Cornwallis are about to join forces. You may remember William Phillips had been with Arnold, but he contracted typhoid fever and died four days earlier. The life of an 18th century general, if bullets or cannonballs, they probably won't be the one to get you. It'll be a mosquito or something you drink. Now, Cornwallis is in charge, and the first thing he does is send Benedict Arnold away. They don't chase him, because at this point, while Arnold would have been a great sort of cherry on top, 
they now still have to worry about Cornwallis. And when Cornwallis arrives, the British army now is somewhere in like seven to 8,000 men, which is a very significant, it's the second largest British army in the entire North America, other than in New York, where sort of the main British base was. And so now, you know, Cornwallis has 8,000 men and Lafayette still only has about 1,200 soldiers, a few hundred militia, but not very well supplied or, or trained. And so Lafayette realizes, well, I really can't do much right now. So he sort of takes a play out of Washington's playbook. And he saw how successful Washington was by keeping his army there, but not risking it in battle, not risking it being destroyed. He retreats northward and stays out of Cornwallis's reach. And Cornwallis realizes, he says, hey, you know, here's Lafayette. It would be great if I could capture and defeat him. But more importantly, why am I here? I am here in Virginia to mess up their supplies, to mess up their logistics. They also messed with Virginia's economy in a great twist of hypocrisy and irony. You have to remember, about 40% of Virginia's population are enslaved, about 200,000 people. And for them, the freedom fighters are wearing red coats, not blue. Because the British Army, their policy throughout much of the war was to offer freedom to enslaved people who were owned by masters deemed in rebellion. This word quickly got out. And so to many enslaved people, when the British show up, this is their opportunity to, to become free. And so when Cornwallis is marauding his way through central Virginia, this is the time for hundreds, thousands of enslaved people run away and liberate themselves by joining his camp. He welcomes them with open arms. Not only does it weaken the institutions of Virginia, it makes a lot of Virginia slave owners very afraid of insurrection, slave rebellion, but they're also very useful for his army. They're able to tell him you know, what roads to take, where uh, local people might be hiding supplies, hiding horses. Virginia is renowned for great horses at this time. And so the British army is able to take up all these horses from surrounding farms because of the help of enslaved people. At one point, it's estimated, you know, there could be two to 3,000 African-Americans traveling with Cornwallis's army as they're marching through Virginia. That's another, I think, interesting aspect of this campaign. Cornwallis tried to keep his focus on creating havoc in the Commonwealth, destroying supplies, and even trying to capture Thomas Jefferson over in Charlottesville. And Lafayette, again, really can't do anything. But his presence is what's important. And Cornwallis isn't able to do everything he might want to because he knows Lafayette is nearby. And Lafayette is eventually reinforced by another group of continental professional soldiers from Washington's army. These are under the command of another well-known American officer named Anthony Wayne. His nickname was Mad Anthony because he was known for being such a hard charger on the battlefield. Lafayette has a sizable army of three, 4,000 soldiers, about half of whom are professional continental soldiers. And, and Cornwallis knows they're nearby and says, you know, I don't want to risk a battle. I don't want to be defeated in the middle of Virginia. So I am going to move my army to the coast. The British are really reliant on their ships, and they need to be close to the rivers and close to the ports. But what no one realizes yet is that Lafayette and Cornwallis are in a dance, leading everyone closer and closer to the end of the war. Right before Yorktown is really the only time Lafayette and Cornwallis come to blows. 
So Cornwallis, before he goes to Yorktown, he's in Williamsburg with his army trying to figure out what his plan is going to be. He's sending letters back to Clinton in New York. And Lafayette had been following him this whole way, putting that pressure on Cornwallis, making sure he doesn't have free reign of everything. It's sort of like cat and mouse. And they fight a battle right outside of Williamsburg called the Battle of Spencer's Ordinary. It's a small battle. Only, you know, several dozen people are killed and wounded on either side. But it shows to the British that the Americans mean business, that we're here. They fight again at Green Springs, July 6th, 1781. This is on basically the land right around where Jamestown settlement is, where the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation has their museum. There was a ferry across the James River where they were moving their soldiers across so they could go to Portsmouth. As they were crossing the river, Lafayette's on opportunity. Cornwallis' army was bigger than his, but if half of it was on the other side of the river, he would have an advantage. But Cornwallis was very smart, and he knew that Lafayette was nearby, and he knew that Lafayette would know that an army crossing a river was vulnerable, so he decided to basically trick Lafayette. And he pretended that most of his army had crossed the river, but he had actually hidden most of it nearby. And so Lafayette looks, and they advance, and they start attacking the British. But right at the last minute, Lafayette sees this hidden British force. And so he is, through some hard fighting, able to get his soldiers out before they're caught by Cornwallis' trap. But Cornwallis definitely teaches Lafayette a lesson, that even though he's this upstart young guy, he still has a lot to learn, I think, about fighting war. Lafayette wrote to Washington about Cornwallis, saying, quote, This devil, Cornwallis, is much wiser than the other generals with whom I've dealt. He inspires me with a sincere fear, and his name has greatly troubled my sleep. This campaign is a good school for me. God grant that the public does not pay for my lessons. That's Lafayette's famed campaign. A few short months later, the French ships finally show up, and Cornwallis is cornered in Yorktown. March 14, 1781, the day a 23-year-old French aristocrat lands in the Commonwealth, determined to prove his worth on a battlefield to honor his family's name. The start of the Marquis de Lafayette's six-month campaign to capture Benedict Arnold and irritate Charles Cornwallis. The missions ultimately pushing the English to the coast and their eventual defeat, clearing the way for the birth of a nation while building Lafayette into a legend and a lasting symbol of liberty. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where digital resources reach nearly 4 million people yearly and collections of more than 130 million items tell the stories of Virginians. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. He co-authored the Federalist Papers with Alexander Hamilton, He's the fourth president of the United States. But his most famous title of all may be the father of the Constitution. This week in history, James Madison was born on March 16, 1751.
Wait a minute, wait a minute. It actually wasn't this day in history. Well, it sort of depends on which calendar you look at. Well, one of the things that's interesting is the calendar actually changes around that time. They switch from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar in September of 1752. And that meant that the day that Madison was actually born, the calendar would have said 5th of March. But when he celebrated his birthday in future years, it would be the 16th of March. That's because the Gregorian calendar added 11 days and changed when the new year started. The Madison Family Bible actually reveals James's original birthday. James Madison Jr. was born on Tuesday night at 12 o'clock, it being the last of the fifth and the beginning of the sixth day of March, 1750-51. It's kind of an interesting thought to have a birthday that you don't actually, for the rest of your life, you don't actually get to celebrate it on what looks like your birthday. It almost makes me want to do math to figure out my Julian calendar birthday, but then again, I hate doing math. But Hillary Hicks coming through with the fun facts this episode. She's the senior research historian at James Madison's Montpelier, and she's our guide today through the long life of this founding father. My family moved to Virginia just before I started college. So I went to William and Mary and then worked for Colonial Williamsburg for four years before I went on to graduate school at the Cooperstown Graduate Program in upstate New York. And that's where I got my master's in museum studies. She's worked at several museums over the years, but she's been with Montpelier in Orange County, Virginia for 12 years now. What is it about Montpelier? It's just a fascinating place and a lot of different kinds of history intersecting here. So, you know, at the beginning, you're learning the basics about James Madison, Dolly Madison, members of the enslaved community. And then the more that I've done research, the more that I've learned about the Madison's friends, the connections within the enslaved community. And the Madison's and the enslaved community to me now are just a a very rich community and, and people people that I know kind of well at this point. Whatever day in March Madison came into this world, it wasn't at this now-famed home. He was born in Belgrove at a historic plantation on U.S. Route 301 in Port Conway, Virginia, modern-day King George County. His mother was Nellie Conway Madison. And this was her first child, and she just wanted to be back with her parents. Her mother probably assisted with the birth. She had other women with her that she would know and feel comfortable with. So it's about about 55 miles from Montpelier. This is a family with means and money. Means and money, although James Madison described his forebearers as being, his quote is something like, of a respectable but not opulent class. He didn't really see his family as being the tip-top of society, but, I mean, they were doing better than a lot of people were. After his birth, James grew up at Montpelier. We think of, of Montpelier as being the lifelong home of James Madison, and actually was the home of three generations of his family. So his great 
great-great-grandfather, John Madison, who spelled his last name with two Ds. He came here about the 1650s and got established in the Tidewater area of Virginia. And then it was John Madison's grandson, Ambrose Madison, who established the plantation here at Montpelier. And then Ambrose was the grandfather of President Madison, James Madison Jr. They eventually dropped the extra D. As for Montpelier, the main crops were tobacco and corn, farmed by more than 300 enslaved men, women, and children, a point we will come back to many times in the telling of Madison's life. And James Madison Sr., the future president's father, he had really a lot of businesses going on, so he would probably think of himself primarily as a planter. But he also had a a distillery. He had three different stills where he was uh, distilling fruit brandy for sale in the neighborhood, and we can see that in some of his account books. He also had a very sizable blacksmithing operation going on that covered about a two-acre site that our archeologists have excavated and found four or five different forges. So we think there were five or six different enslaved blacksmiths working there. And the amount of ironwork they were putting out, tools, either tools that they were making or things they were repairing. In some years, the blacksmithing operation may have been bringing more money into the plantation than the agriculture was. As for what James Madison was like as a child, well, we really don't know. We don't know too much about his younger life. And it's interesting, he writes an autobiographical sketch in his later years, and he skips over an awful lot, what we would probably think would be formative experiences. We know he came from a big family. He was the oldest of 12 children, although there were never 12 at home at any given time. Three of the 12 died either at birth or in infancy. And then there were two children who died during a dysentery epidemic at ages four and seven. So there were only seven who actually lived to adulthood. Their ages were spread out far enough that James Madison Jr. was out in the world back and forth, coming and going from Montpelier when his youngest sister was still very young. In the writings and descriptions of his life, there were also whispers, too, of health issues from the beginning. He seems to have had an issue. Some more recent biographers have suggested that it might have been a form of epilepsy. In his autobiography, he talks about a, quote, discouraging feebleness of his constitution. He seems to have had periods where he describes it as sort of the functions of his sensations being suspended. So... Not exactly losing consciousness, but being in a state where he's not responsive. That happened some in his younger years. And then he just seemed to be someone who was prone to catching whatever was going around. He had a lot of troubles with different kinds of fevers during his lifetime. He was home taught in the early years by his mother, but was sent off to boarding school around the age of 12. He studies with a man named Donald Robertson. He studies Latin and Greek because that was the basics of a gentleman's education. He learns to read but not to speak French, and that comes up a little bit in his later life. 
It happens when he's at Princeton, which was also an interesting choice of school for a Virginian. Because usually at this time, most Virginians were sending their sons to William and Mary. So a little bit unusual that he chose to go to Princeton. But while at Princeton, he had one of those stories you tell for the rest of your life. It even showed up in his autobiography. It shows up in other people's character sketches of stories they remember him telling. And what happened was that a French visitor came to, uh, to Princeton. And Dr. Witherspoon, who was the president of the college and could speak French, was not around. And none of the other students had studied French at all. And Madison had learned how to read it, but he didn't know how to speak it. And the man who had taught him was a Scotsman. So if anything, he was trying to pronounce French with a little bit of a Scottish burr. And uh, it apparently was a very embarrassing incident for Madison. And so he says, the meeting took place with this French visitor with a salutation and questions on his part, which though they would have been intelligible to the eye, were perfectly otherwise to the ear. So if he could have seen the questions, the visitor's questions written out, he could have answered them, but he couldn't recognize from the sound of it. And he said, the scene was as awkward as possible. But fortunately, after abortive efforts sufficiently repeated, the doctor, Dr. Witherspoon, arrived to the great relief of all the parties and not a moment lost in the escape of the discomfited interpreter. After college, like a lot of people, Madison was a little adrift, unsure of what direction to take his life. Before he left Princeton, he stayed on a few extra months to study Hebrew, which is kind of an interesting choice. And mostly it would be students who were planning to go into the ministry who studied Hebrew. So that might suggest he was at least toying with the idea of becoming a minister. When he comes home, he starts reading law. So that suggests maybe he's thinking of becoming a lawyer. He seems to be having a little bit of a failure to launch. He can't really decide what it is he wants to do. As the tensions build in the 1770s between the colonies and the mother country, James Madison eventually figures out a direction. He's a legislator, not a fighter. He attempts to join the militia and it doesn't work out because, as he said, a feebleness of his constitution. He doesn't do a whole lot of writing, but he becomes involved in, in legislation. When he was in that Fifth Virginia Convention in 1776, one of the things they did in addition to approving a state constitution for Virginia, they approved George Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights. And Madison made a small but important change in the wording of that because Mason's original version said that there should be religious toleration. Now that, that sounds fine, I mean, we're all supposed to be tolerant of each other. But in the technical sense, at that time when they talked about religious toleration, that meant there would still be a state-supported church like the Church of England had been. And the other denominations would just be tolerated. And so what Madison said was, no, we need to have full exercise of religious freedom, which really put all the denominations on the same footing. It separated church and state and left people the option to participate in some form of religion or not to participate in religion. So he's the reason we have the separation of church and state. 
he's a big part of the reason. In that convention, Madison would really find his calling, politics and government. Unfortunately, he's lacking in one area politicians usually excel, public speaking. James Madison is not a great orator. Not a bit. In fact, some people had trouble hearing him when he got up in the legislature to speak. He tended to be very quiet, not a big voice, not an orator. If you met him in public, you would probably think he was a little bit cold or standoffish, or some people thought he was downright unfriendly. But when you were with him in a small group of people, like around the dinner table at Montpelier, he was very talkative. He had all sorts of anecdotes and witty stories. So apparently he was quite the dinner table companion. The quintessential introvert with a hidden voice about to explode into writings we all cherish to this day. Then in the early 1780s, he is a congressman under the Articles of Confederation in Philadelphia. Then we go through the whole Constitutional Convention where Madison has been very concerned that the Articles of Confederation are basically falling apart. The system is not working well. So in the spring of 1786, he's at home. He does some research because everybody does research when there's a crisis going on. I say that as the senior research historian. That's what I do. Okay, as an investigative journalist, I'm with you, Hillary. It's what I do, too. He does research into looking for examples in political history of times when people have tried to govern themselves without king. So he's looking at ancient Greece, ancient Rome. He's looking at the Lycian Confederacy and what's now Turkey, the early Germanic states, the Swiss cantons. And the conclusion that he comes to is in all of these governments, at some point they hit problems because the central government is not strong enough. And that's what Madison is seeing in the United States with the Articles of Confederation. And that's what really helped him prepare for the Constitutional Convention. He does a lot of strategizing where he makes sure that George Washington attends the Constitutional Convention, which at that time is just referred to as the Federal Convention because officially they're just fixing the Articles of Confederation. They haven't really committed to writing a new constitution. Madison arrives early so that he can talk with other members of the Virginia delegation and get them on board with his ideas. Since he's not that great of a speaker, he gets one of the other Virginia delegates, Edmund Randolph, to present his ideas in the convention. Madison's ideas become known as the Virginia Plan. I know you studied that in high school at some point, but Hillary's got the cliff notes. Did I just date myself with that reference? Should I say Hillary's got Google? Virginia plan set out as one possible way to organize the government. Delegates from New Jersey propose an alternate New Jersey plan that is a lot closer in spirit to the Articles of Confederation. And then they come to the compromise version, or the Great Compromise or the Connecticut Compromise. And that basically sets up the system that we have today where in the upper house, every state has two senators. So there's equal representation for the states. In the lower house, the number of representatives is based on population, which is something that 
Madison had wanted that to happen in both houses, so the compromise version was it happened in the lower house. He's also a key player in getting the Constitution ratified by the states. He's co-author of the Federalist Papers. Alexander Hamilton, of course, writes the most, but Madison also writes a good amount, followed by John Jay. And the idea was these were essentially editorials for New York newspapers. They have to get nine states to ratify the Constitution. And they're getting close, but they're not quite there. And it's thought that Virginia and New York are going to be two of the critical states. As it turns out, by the time Virginia and New York ratify, they've already gotten nine. They know that Virginia and New York are going to be big battleground states. And so the three men write this series of articles for New York newspapers. And the idea is to explain the political theory behind the Constitution, as well as to convince people that the Constitution is going to be a good thing to adopt. After the Constitution is finally ratified, Madison goes to Congress as the representative from Virginia. And it was while there, in the 1790s, the longtime bachelor meets Dolly. He's 43, she's 26. She was born in North Carolina, but her family was from Virginia and they were Quakers, but they owned slaves. And at the point where the Quaker meetings decide you can no longer be a Quaker in good standing and still enslave people, that's when Dolly's father decides to free the people that he had enslaved. He gives up on farming in Virginia at that point and moves the family up to Philadelphia where he becomes a, a starch merchant. We told you all about Dolly's backstory in season four of the podcast. She was a force, the extrovert to Madison's introvert the perfect yin and yang. She was previously married, but lost her husband and a son to a yellow fever epidemic. Left to care for a toddler, she meets James. We don't know exactly how she comes to the attention of James Madison, who's there in Philadelphia as a congressman. But he asks a mutual friend to arrange an introduction. And the mutual friend is Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, sir? You have to know by now, I am not leaving that joke on the table. I just don't have it in me to walk away from a good Hamilton reference. So Madison knew Burr from their time together at Princeton. Burr knew Dolly's family because Dolly's mother had operated a boarding house at one point. So Burr makes the introduction, they court for a few months, and then they get married. Besides Dolly, there's another important relationship in his life. His friendship with fellow Virginian Thomas Jefferson is legendary. It starts in the Williamsburg years. So they know each other slightly when Madison first is elected to office. But where they really become close is when Jefferson is governor of Virginia and Madison is serving on the governor's council. And that seems to be the beginning of really being close friends. And then their friendship lasts a good 50 years or so up until the end of Jefferson's life. When Jefferson establishes the University of Virginia, not far from Montpelier, it's Madison who joins the Board of Visitors. And they're talking about what kinds of political history they want to teach. 
the Federalist Papers is among the, the things they want to introduce students to. They have a really interesting relationship and people tend to assume that Jefferson's the leader and Madison's the follower, but there was really a lot of interaction between them and Jefferson tended to be the person who talked in big idea terms and Madison would be the one who would push back and say, well, you know, is, is that entirely true? Or Madison a lot of times was sort of the string on Jefferson's kite, I think, kind of kept him grounded. Madison would succeed Jefferson as the fourth president of the United States. He took the office at the age of 58 and served two terms. His first election was a hard-fought battle. So it was a little bit of a referendum on Jefferson. One of the things that was very much helpful to him in getting the nomination was actually the influence of Dolly, because to get the nomination of his party, he had to defeat George Clinton. And Clinton was a widower, didn't have anyone functioning as a hostess for him in the way that Dolly was functioning as a hostess for Madison. As president, Madison initiated the War of 1812. He worked very hard as a wartime president to not violate constitutional principles. His re-election took place during the war, was the first time that there was an election contest during a war. Overall, I don't think his presidency is the most significant part in his political career. I think his role in the Constitutional Convention was really more significant long term. It's what he's still known for today. And in his lifetime, before he died, he was openly referred to as the father of the Constitution. He was the last living participant in the Constitutional Convention. So by the time he's the last one, a lot of people are calling him the father of the Constitution. And he pushed back on that when someone called him that. He said that, no, it had been the work of many heads and many hands. But we certainly see his as one of the guiding hands. So he didn't write the Constitution in the same way that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and then there were some changes worked on it by Congress. So the writing process, I would say, was more collaborative for the Constitution. But by putting the ideas out there that became the Virginia Plan, pretty much, some would disagree with this, but pretty much everything that happened after the Virginia Plan was introduced is a reaction for or against the ideas in the Virginia Plan. So Madison really seized the agenda by putting the Virginia Plan out there. He also contributed to the final document in other ways. Some of the major ideas about federalism, about the separation of powers, system of checks and balances. So he contributed a lot of the significant ideas. And then in Virginia, he really pushed through Virginia ratifying convention. So he's a big part of the reason that Virginia ratified. And then by being one of the writers of the Federalist Papers, he contributed to New York ratifying. And then once the Constitution was approved and Madison became a congressman, the first project he really took on was writing a draft for the Bill of Rights. And it's interesting because Madison was against the Bill of Rights before he was for the Bill of Rights. During the Constitutional Convention, he was of the opinion that we didn't really need a Bill of Rights at the federal level because pretty much all the states had adopted something of a Bill of Rights like 
the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And so Madison felt the people's rights were sufficiently protected. But what he saw as each state went through the ratification process was the biggest objection to the Constitution was lack of Bill of Rights. So he became persuaded that it was a good thing. There were over 200 suggested amendments that came out of the different states ratifying conventions. And so he took that as a starting point and distilled it down to a version that then went to Congress for further editing. And like so many of those founding fathers who fought so hard to birth this country from oppression, he ultimately failed to see it through and break the bonds of slavery. Our country still reeling from the hypocrisy of his generation. We know a lot of things that he felt about slavery, and his position was kind of complicated. Overall, he continued to participate in the system of slavery. He, he did not free any of the people he had enslaved. I think in his earlier years, he was experimenting in his mind a little bit more with thinking about liberty and what that could mean to the enslaved population. So, for example, there's a letter where he talks about wanting to find a way to make a living without depending on the labor of enslaved people. And at that time, he's thinking that there would be a possibility of sort of making a living through land speculation. During the 1780s, when he's in Congress, there's a situation that comes up with a man named Billy Gardner that he had enslaved. And there's a letter that he writes to his father it's one of those letters where both parties know the basics of the story. So when you're reading the story, you're trying to figure out what situation has led up to this story. And so it seems that Billy may have run away and that Madison is trying to figure out, well, now what am I going to do now that he's back again? What often happened, particularly at Montpelier, if someone ran away, a punishment might be to sell that person. And Madison is saying, well, he doesn't want to sell Billy just for having coveted the liberty for which we've shed so much blood. He sees the conflict between his beliefs about liberty and enslaving men and women. And yet nothing really changes. And what he ends up doing is sort of an interesting middle way that he finds. He decides he's not going to sell Billy and continue for him to be in slavery. He's going to sell him in Philadelphia because there's a law against long-term servitude. So he's selling him into some form of short-term servitude, knowing that he's going to become free eventually. He's taking a lower price for Billy than if he sold them into continued servitude. But he's also not just giving him his freedom. In his later years, once he inherits Montpelier, he falls directly back into the pattern. Basically, people are raising crops with enslaved labor, and that's how they're making their income. I think he makes some effort to treat people, as he would say, humanely, which is not the same thing as saying he was a good slave owner. He tended not to use physical punishments, but certainly the, the threat of being sold is, is a huge punishment. His cruelty, you could argue, is worse than a whip. It literally breaks the heart. You are separating mothers from children, husbands from wives, sisters and brothers forever. 
that's one of the things that sometimes we don't stop to think about in slavery. It's not just about, is somebody feeding you? Is somebody clothing you? It's, do you have the choice to be with your family, be with the people you want to be with? So Madison, he feels that slavery is wrong. He continues to practice slavery. He becomes involved in a movement called the colonization movement, where it's kind of a proposed long-term solution to slavery, where gradually enslaved people would be emancipated and then they would be relocated, possibly in the American West, more likely in Africa. And he sees that as a potential solution, which even at the time was kind of an iffy idea. And one of the people that he talked to, uh, someone who came to visit Montpelier was Harriet Martineau, and she was a British abolitionist. She talked with Madison a lot about slavery and abolition and the colonization movement. And she said something to the effect of how such a mind as his could see this as a solution. It was just beyond what she could fathom. That's what always fascinates me whenever we talk about these great men who shaped and created this country, the contradictions. They shed blood and climbed a mountain of odds against them to find liberty, and yet they couldn't break the cycle. It's certainly a failing in the founding generation. We would like to say that the founding fathers got all of it right, but they didn't. March 16, 1751, or the 5th, James Madison, the father of the Constitution, the architect of the Bill of Rights, was born. Yet another Virginian who helped determine how we live today, 271 years later. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written and edited by me, Rachel DePampa, with special shout out to digital director Kate Albright for the cleanup edits, and of course, executive producer Colton Weekly for the iron fist of editing. And a special thanks to our two first-time guests this week, Sam Floor, the Virginia History Day coordinator at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and Hillary Hicks, the senior research historian at James Madison's Montpelier. Next week on episode three. Give me liberty! A speech you know I can never leave out of this podcast. Oh, give me death! Behind the scenes on the day Patrick Henry delivered those famous words. Henry rises out of his seat, and I say rises because Henry is a rover. When he gives his speech, he goes up and down the aisles and walks around the church. And an enslaved man escapes Richmond and heads north by cramming his body into a wooden crate. 27 hours. I mean, imagine being in a box for over 24 hours to ship up north to Philadelphia. One can only imagine like what was going through his mind. The daring and dangerous escape of Henry Box Brown. You do anything you can to be free because the alternative is is untenable. Plus, we estimate approximately 347 English settlers are killed outright 
And that's a pretty significant blow to a population that numbers just over a thousand. Powhatan warriors strike back at encroaching colonists. History has two sides, right? These are English accounts. We are silent on the Native American side of things. A revisiting of the narrative from history told from 400 years ago. That's next week on Episode 3. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. Look us up on Instagram, howwegothereva. We'll be back in your life next Monday.